0: Stonewall Jackson. In the days before his day of fame, the Battle of First Manassas, or Bull Run as you might refer to it, he was a teacher, an instructor at Virginia Military Institute. The superintendent of the school, on one particular occasion, called for General Jackson to come to his office for a meeting. Jackson came, entered, superintendent told him to have a seat. He sat down in front of the desk, the superintendent, whereupon the superintendent excused himself, said, please uh, wait here for me, or something of that nature, indicating that he had an errand to run, and he left, and one thing led to another. He was distracted, he forgot about Jackson. It must have been in the afternoon, because he ended up going home, leaving Jackson seated there. He went home, he had supper, he spent the evening, went to bed, slept the night, got up the next morning, came back, only to find Jackson still seated in the chair in his office right where he left him. General Jackson was a military man, obviously, and he took obedience seriously. He took an order seriously. He saw that request to have a seat as an order, and he did not vary from his obedience. What an example of obedience comes to us from General Stonewall Jackson. This is Jay Wagoner, and welcome to the Shepherd's Table podcast. Today, we're looking at the first few verses of Chapter 1 of the Book of Jonah. For more information on Shepherd's Table ministries, you can visit shepherdstable.net. But let's get back to General Jackson. My question is this. Would you have still been sitting there in that chair the next morning? I don't know if I would have been in that chair. But he was strictly obedient to the commands of his superior officer. Jonah? Well, that's the opposite case. God gave Jonah a very specific command. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah disobeyed. In fact, he is a great example of disobedience in the scripture. But there's much to be learned from the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah as we have it here in this book. And the truth of the matter is, you and I are a whole lot more like Jonah than we might have ever thought about being. Who was Jonah anyway? Well, we're told here he's the son of a Matai. We don't know who that was. That doesn't help us. We are told that he is, or he was from the city of Gatheper. That comes from, 2nd Kings fourteen twenty five, and Gathephar was not far from Nazareth in the northern kingdom of Israel in those days. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. His only recorded prophecy is in 2nd Kings 14 and I'll read it to you. It says in the 15th year of Amaziah the son of Joash the king of Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who, was made, who had made Israel sin. He, he, this is speaking of the king, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Mattai the prophet who was from gath Hefer. That's the only recorded prophecy we have of Jonah. I expect he was rather popular for having revealed that the king was going to gain back some territory from the Assyrians, like he did. But we remember Jonah for, for his disobedience. And that's why we wanna talk about it. And By the way, this prophecy will bear on what we're gonna talk about today. So keep it in mind. Why does anyone choose to disobey God? Well, probably because of our ability to justify our disobedience to ourselves. In fact, when someone disobeys and justifies it to themselves, they kind of enter an altered state of reality, convince themselves that what they're doing is all right, convince themselves that God will understand. But that kind of thinking is not reality. When we disobey God, we have to face the reality of our disobedience. And that's what I want us to notice today in the first four, well, three and a half verses of uh, the book of Jonah in the first chapter. Here we find the realities that Jonah faced, that he was, the realities he needed to face. He wasn't really aware of them, but they're very clear here as we look at these verses. When we disobey God, and we enter that altered state of thinking, we have to, the, first, the first step back, the first thing we have to do is come face to face with reality. Well, there are two realities that Jonah had to face here, two undeniable realities that we'll see. The first one is this, reality number one. There are no excuses. No excuse is good enough for disobeying God. Now, I'm, I know Jonah had his excuses, and one's very clear as we see it here. I think his first excuse would have been something like this: "Well, if if I do what God tells me to do, the Ninevites might benefit from that, and they don't. They do not deserve it. The undeserving would benefit." If I did what God told me to do, now that's not really apparent here in the verses we read, but as we'll get to later on, over in chapter four, uh, Jonah mentions that the reason he disobeyed was he was afraid that if he went and preached this message to Nineveh, that you know they might repent, and the message, as we as it is revealed over chapter four, was that God was going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. Well, it was a conditional prophecy. There was no reason to give him 40 days if it wasn't. Jonah realized this, and he did not want to see the Ninevites turn to God. Let's talk about the city of Nineveh. It was founded by Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 11, so it had a very uh, inauspicious beginning. It was something done by ungodly people. It had by this time, become one of the largest cities in the world. Some people say the largest. It's located on the Tigris River in uh, Mesopotamia, and it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So to understand who Nineveh was and who the Ninevites were, you have to understand who the Assyrians were. Well, they were probably the most hated people in the world. They were known for their unusual cruelty. They'd conquer a city or a country, Uh, They would treat the conquered foes and inhabitants in the most unusually cruel fashion, killing them in in the most heinous type of ways. Well, they had pretty much taken all the territory of the Middle East, the known world in that day. They were the world power. And they had subjugated the northern tribes of Israel in 841 BC, which is by the time Jonah's uh, book and the events of it come into reality. That was, well, nearly 100 years. They had subjugated Israel and forced them to pay tribute. But eventually, uh, they would conquer the northern kingdom another 100 years later. And uh, the the Assyrians were the sworn enemy of the Israelites. Jonah's prophecy about the king and Israel gaining back some of his land uh, that, that was that would have been good news to everybody. That was uh, a great and wonderful message for Jonah to deliver. I'm sure uh, this was not such a welcome message here to go to the Ninevites and give them an opportunity to repent. So, one of his excuses had to be, "Well, the undeserving would benefit." Here's another excuse I think uh, that probably ran through Jonah's mind: uh, Others would not approve of my actions. That's right. <laughs> Probably nobody in Israel would approve of giving the Ninevites an opportunity to repent, but they would all have been happy if they didn't, and God would destroy the place. The only recorded prophecy of Jonah we've mentioned back in Second Kings fourteen twenty five was popular. This assignment, if the Ninevites responded in any way at all in a positive manner, that would not have been that would not have been a very popular prophecy. So. Suppose he had went and and preached and and they did uh, repent and God didn't destroy him and uh, Jonah wouldn't be a popular man coming home. Others wouldn't approve of my actions. Here's another excuse that Jonah probably used. I might suffer, personally suffer, if I do this. Well, why would he think that? Well, the Assyrians might not appreciate his message. Here's a lone Here's a lone prophet walking up to maybe the largest city in the world and prophesying that God's going to destroy the place. Now, keep in mind, the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. I mean, uh, to go and do what God said here from a human perspective involved uh, some risk, probably a lot of risk. There was no assurance of protection from harm. And then again, even if they didn't kill him and they believed and came to God as they eventually did, at least for a while. Uh, then what glory is that for Joan, especially going back home? So we see, when we understand the situation between the Assyrians and Israel, I mean, Israel's paying tribute, they're paying taxes. I mean, Assyria is bleeding them dry, and uh, they, they kind of got a reprieve. This this gaining back of land happened at a time when the Assyrian Empire had some internal struggles, and they weren't focused on their their external territories. And, uh, yet that, that was a time of rejoicing in Northern Israel. And yet these, these people were hated. And, uh, that, that was probably his greatest excuse. Maybe not his excuse, but his motivation for the excuses. So reality number one for all of us, I mean, the Bible says here that Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord in verse three, uh, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. In fact, he ran away. And of course, the thought that a lot of people have is that John was trying to run away from God. I, I think the verse says it this way. He tried to flee from the presence of God. He knew he couldn't flee from God, but he wanted to get away from anything associated with God, and go to a different place. That leads us to the second reality. The second reality of disobedience. The first, there is no escape. No, there is no excuse for uh, Disobey God. The second is there is no escape. No excuse is good enough and no escape is going to be possible. There's no escape from the consequences of disobeying God. All attempts to escape our God-given responsibilities then are misguided. Jonah's attempt here was misguided. Again in verse 3, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Running away was a misguided attempt to escape his responsibility. And it says here that he he was fleeing to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was about 2,000 miles west, clear across the whole length of the Mediterranean Sea, pretty much. Tarshish was probably a Phoenician port in Spain. And so he fled his homeland, but 2000 miles to the to the to the very end of the known world to them in that day and to give you some contrast Nineveh was a 700 mile trip by land in the opposite direction so he literally put 2700 miles between him and his responsibilities now Jonah was not trying to flee from God he knew well Uh, What's written in Psalm 137, 7 to 10. And I I guess we probably should just go ahead and flip over there. Psalm uh, 139, 139, beginning at verse 7. And uh, here we read what David said. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? I ascend into heaven, you are there. I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Now, David wrote that many years before Jonah lived. And Jonah obviously was aware of Psalms. He quotes Psalm 18 a lot in chapter 2. He had to know that God was omnipresent. He couldn't get away from God. But he could remove himself from the presence of God. In other words, there's no prophets in Tarshish to come up and confront him or bring him a message from God. Probably not anybody in Tarshish that even believes in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God. There's nothing there to remind him. So it's a place where he can go and get away from his own guilt, uh, salve his guilty conscience, not be reminded of what he's done. So there's one misguided attempt, try to alleviate your guilt by You know, removing yourself from all possibility of being obedient. There's a second misguided attempt here, I think, as well. And that is this. Jonah tried to create some obstacles to his obedience. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. That was his goal. And the first place he went was down to Joppa, which is a seacoast city. A Phoenician port, again, on the Mediterranean Sea. And it says he paid his fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, why, does he, why do you suppose it says, and he paid his fare? That seems like a pretty trivial comment to be inserted here into the word of God. But I think it is key to understanding that that was not uh, a cheap fare, I'm sure. It's quite possible Jonah paid so much for it, he would not have money for a return trip. Now, God eventually gave him a free return trip, courtesy of the fish, but in his mind, he was uh, making it impossible for God to expect him to go to Nineveh. So sometimes we do crazy things like that, and we're just just playing games with ourselves, creating obstacles to uh, doing what we know we should do by our own actions. Here's another misguided attempt. I think it's kind of wrapped up in all this, and then the other two in in particular, uh, I think Joe was, Jonah was trying to change God's mind. In other words, if I make it so difficult for God, and this goes back to the previous misguided attempt, but if I make it so difficult for God to use me, then maybe God will just change His mind and send somebody else. It'd be a whole lot easier to send another prophets already in Israel than to try to get me cleared back from from Tarshish and, and all the rest. But uh, again, that was a misguided attempt. Well, God knew right where Jonah was, and he knew how to find him, and he knew how to get him back. Verse 4 begins this way, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. See, God sent a storm after Jonah. He sent a particular storm, a very, very fierce storm that rattled even the experienced Phoenician sailor. And he sent it right straight to where Jonah was, and where the ship was that was on that sea. Now, God will do the same type of things in our lives. He'll send a storm sometimes. When we find ourselves imitating Jonah, when we have made enough excuses to justify ourselves in our own mind, and maybe, hopefully, we think in God's mind, uh, and then when we have, you know, created enough... Uh, Uh, enough obstacles to God ever using us and and employing all these uh, contrived ways of escaping from our responsibilities. We find that God sends a storm into our life. It might not be a literal storm. It might be a financial problem. It might be a health issue. It's something that he sends our way to wake us up, just like he did Jonah. So I'm wondering, at this present moment in your life, are you in the midst of a storm? Is there something there that is pointing you back to obeying God? If so, uh, you need to wake up. Jonah was asleep, as we find out in the next verse. and We'll get to that later on. He had needed to wake up, you know, physically. Uh, but he, he didn't wake up. And he did, but he didn't wake up spiritually for a while. But God sends out storms to wake us up so that we'll be obedient. So we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to face the realities of disobedience. That's the first thing we need if we're going to ever become useful and if we're ever going to be obedient again to God. And so maybe you're not in the midst of a storm. Maybe you're not disobedient at this moment. But I'm wondering if you were challenged to go to Nineveh, would you go? What if what if we were sent somewhere like that, some nation in our world today that was nothing but evil, and there are plenty of them, or maybe we can just make it a little bit more everyday practice. If God said, "Sit in that chair," I'll be back, and He didn't come back twenty-four hours or more, would we still be sitting in that chair? How 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 seriously do we take the need to obey God, to live by His word? That's the question we have to face. It's one that if we can come to grips with, we'll revolutionize our life as simple as it is. Just obey God. Just do what the Word of God says. You'll avoid a lot of storms in your life if you do. This is Jay Wagoner. You've been listening to the Shepherd's Table podcast. Again, for more information on Shepherd's Table Ministries, visit shepherdstable.net. We'll see you next time.